0: We're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. Are you lonely? Are you angry? Are you doing just fine? Are you proud? Are you stressed? Are you burdened with sins? Are you sad? Are you hopeless? If so, you're in the right place. What is this place? What is a church? How would you answer that question? I mean, this is one thing all of us in this room have in common. We are at church. We're spending time here. We're giving an hour and a half ish of our time here. So we might as well all understand what is a church? What is this place? Whether it's your first time at church, your first time, In a long time, or it's your countless time, I wonder how you'd answer that question. Some might say a church is a hospital for the broken. Others might say it's a headquarter for missions work. We can think of the work of the Spences and their team, or Ben Walker and many others. Some might say a church is a melting pot where people with all types of backgrounds come together that we might stir one another up to love and good works. And friends, there's truth in all these answers. Uh, A church is like a diamond. It's a multifaceted thing. Of course, it's useful to know a theological definition. People talk about church with a capital C. C. That's a universal church made up of believers from all times and places. And people talk about church with a lowercase c. That's a local church, like Iron City Church. A local church is a gathering of Christians who meet regularly in one place to hear God's Word taught and to celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper. A local church is a gathering of Christians who meet regularly in one place to hear God's Word taught and to celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper. It's the weekly gathering of Jesus' disciples, his brothers and sisters. It's the family gathering. We could talk more about the church as Jesus' bride or the church as a dress rehearsal for what's to come in the new heavens and new earth. And yet, there is another layer that our text could have us add to our understanding of church. And that is that a church is a language school. A language school where you not only where you learn not only how to hear Christian things, but speak Christian. I don't mean that you learn how to say big seminary seminary words necessarily, or pronounce hard names in the Bible, or where you're instructed to casually say Christian buzzwords like, Lord willing, as so many other people who've grown up in the South do. No, I mean you learn a new language. Language. A new way of training your mouth to edify people. But you learn not only how to speak to your neighbor, you also learn how to speak to God. To cry out to God. Friends, the church is God's Rosetta Stone. And the language we are going to learn today is that of lament. Turn to the book of Lamentations. Lamentations, it's on page 641 of those pew Bibles. Lamentations is a book of poetry. Uh, So last week we talked about looking at different types of Scripture, different genres, and we said that different genres can have different rules. We expect different things from poetry than we do history, for example. And yet in all of this, throughout this bird's eye series of overview sermons, we're tracking with the Bible's one story. Uh, From cover to cover, there is one story of God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's a way to sum up the one story of the Bible. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And Lamentations is the painful, particular, and poetic Commentary of what it was like when God's people were kicked out of God's place. Vomited out, as we heard a few weeks ago in Leviticus. Exiled. It was the year 588 BC when Babylon besieged the city of Jerusalem For two years, meaning they surrounded it and cut off resources such as food and water before they dragged God's people out of God's place. So the strategy of besieging is surrounding a city, weakening it, causing it to suffer, then going in and sacking it or raiding it, surrounding, suffering, sacking. And the Babylonians were very good at this. The enemy had won. We see that, we see from that last line in chapter 1, verse 9, the enemy has triumphed. The author cries. We're not sure, we're not sure who the author of Lamentations is. Many think it to be Jeremiah, or who's often called the weeping prophet due to his grief over Israel's sin and the judgment it incurred. You can look at later at Jeremiah 9:10 for an example of his grief. But the fact that the author is anonymous serves the point of the book. Because it's not one person or one group suffering we're looking at. It's an entire nation's grief. The author is crying out on behalf of all of God's people who saw their city, their temple destroyed. Women and men. Children and infants, priests and elders. The book captures the cries of the people. It is a loud wailing. But the book is not just an emotional venting and uncontrolled scream and screed at God. No, you see, Lamentations was miserably, though carefully, crafted. Lamentations is made up of five poems. Chapters 1, 2, and 4 are written in the form of a Hebrew funeral dirge, a funeral song. All but the final poem employ a writing technique called an acrostic, where each verse begins with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And while this might sound like a lecture on literature, I promise you God has something in store as regards how this book was written, so keep its structure in mind. We'll come back to it. But even now, You might consider how by using the whole Hebrew alphabet, the author is trying to spell out the totality, the A to Z of the terror God's people experienced and their grief over it. Let's see it for ourselves. The background behind this book is that God's people had been brought into God's place, they'd been given king after king, and they had sinned against God. And abandon the covenant he made with them. That's a flyover leading up to our text today. We're going to ask four questions of today's passage. Here's the first Where does sin lead? Question number one Where does sin lead? Answer to sorrow. To sorrow. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers are the chapters, the little numbers are the verses. Lamentations 1 cries, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night. With tears on her cheeks, among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile, under affliction, and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion, another name for Jerusalem, the roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Let's pause there. Beloved, where does sin lead? to sorrow. Church family, one thing that happens to us at church is we're reminded of the emptiness of sin's promises, the devastation to which sin leads. By sin, I mean rebellion against God. That's what tragically had characterized the people of God. I've been reading Second Chronicles in my quiet time these past few mornings, and I'm struck by how often the summary statement of the kings and the people is that they are evil. King after king. Generation after generation. Now, haven't we seen this in numbers? In judges. Wickedness. How does 2 Chronicles 21, 11 summarize it? The king led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom and made Judah go astray. And what does the Lord do in his mercy? 2 Chronicles 24, 19, he sent prophets among the people and the kings to bring them back to the Lord. These testified against them, but they would not pay attention. The people were too busy sinning to hear God's calling. And I'm sure the sin was fun. I'm sure it was sweet for a little while. But where did did sin lead the people but to devastation? Friends, one basic question, Lamentations answers, is what was the exile like? The exile is a major part of the history of God's people. What was it like? what was it like when the temple was destroyed, when the city was burned? It was terrible. The verses we just read said as much. Verse 1, the city is empty, not by choice, but by force. Middle of verse 3 says, there is no resting place. Beloved, that's so tragic because God's people were to enjoy rest in God's place. The promised land held out the prospect of a new, e- a new kind of Eden, that first garden which God rested over on the seventh day. His people were meant to live in that rest. But now, as the end of verse 4 says, the people suffer bitterly. They've been destroyed, infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. Chapter 2 says... And how does the writer process this, reflect on this? He grieves. Turn to chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. It says, my eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns, my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. Brothers and sisters, notice the writer doesn't ignore his pain, he doesn't glamorize it like no pain, no gain. He gives it voice. He asks God to see what he sees. We see this request in chapter 1, verse 11. Chapter 1, verse 11. We're flipping back and forth because the writer's pain, like his heart, is all over the place. The writer has just said in verse 9, the enemy has triumphed over the city. He personifies the city as this captured woman. Verse 11 says, all her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Now beloved, it should be said that of course we're not Israel. Right? We don't just read ourselves and our city into this account, into this account as if America is Israel and Washington DC is the capital that'll be overthrown. Under the old covenant, God had a unique relationship with the nation of Israel. But this passage still teaches us about the sorrow of sin. We still lament sin, the sin of others, the sin of our nation, the sins of our city, the sins of ourselves. Ephesians 4 says we ought not grieve the spirit that's in us. Friends, sin ought to make us sad. Sad. And one thing we do with our sadness, one tool Scripture has for us, one language it gives us is lament. Earlier we were defining the church. What about lament? What is it? A pastor named Mark Vrogrop describes lament as a prayer in pain that leads to trust in God. A prayer in pain that leads to trust in God. You can find that definition in his really helpful book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Dark clouds, deep mercy. And church members, I did an interview with Mark about lament, and we'll send that in tomorrow's manifold. But the matter is clear, brothers and sisters, where does sin lead? To sorrow. For these things I weep. Chapter 1, verse 16 says, my eyes flow with tears. But friends, sin is not merely a sad thing. It is also an evil thing, and so it deserves justice. Question number two, what does sin deserve? What does sin deserve? Answer, justice. Beloved, Babylon wasn't a random enemy who just happened to gang up on Israel. Rather, because God is good and his people were not, the Lord sent Babylon, used Babylon as the expression of his judgment on their sin. This is the writer's own testimony that Babylon's invading was the Lord's doing. At the end of chapter 1, verse 14, the writer says, The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. Chapter 2 says, over and over, He, the Lord, has done this. He has done this. Chapter 2, verse 3, He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. Chapter 2, verse 4, He has bent His bow like an enemy, with His right hand set like a foe. And in verse 5, we find this, the Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. Chapter 4, verse 16, the Lord himself has scattered his people. He will guard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests nor favor to the elders. Friends, the writer is not seeing what's going on as a series of random, unfortunate events. He sees the Lord's sovereignty over the nations, and he sees his sovereignty behind the exile. And he doesn't fault God for sending Babylon because he knows the people deserve justice. Chapter one, verse 18. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. Friends, God is only doing what he said he would do if the people abandoned him. How does chapter 2, verse 17 put it? The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Friends, rather than impugn ill motive to God, the writer reminds us of the seriousness of his word and the seriousness of our sin. Now, we need to be careful because we're a congregation of believers under the new covenant, not the old. Right? By the new covenant, I mean what Dustin read to us earlier, the new set of promises and the new kind of relationship God's people now enjoy through Christ. And one chief benefit of that relationship is that there's no more judgment left for us. And I say this because I know some of you will be tempted to look at lamentations and be tempted to think, okay, this bad thing happened in my life because I committed this sin. But remember, beloved, that's what Job's friend said, right, from last week. Let me be clear. There is a category of the Lord's corrective discipline, even for Christians, Right? You won't receive final condemnation on Judgment Day, but sometimes the Lord does correct us. In love, he disciplines us as his children. One way to think about it is that our parents may not throw us out of the house, but they do discipline us. Last week in Job, we saw that it's not all suffering is our fault, but this week shows us something of what it looks like when it is. That said, my new covenant brothers and sisters, a pastor named Tim Chester gives great counsel on trying to discern whether our suffering is our fault. He says, sometimes God disciplines us to lead us to repentance. But this is not normally how God's discipline works. God's discipline is much broader than simply correction. We must not think of a headmaster wielding his cane. So how do I know if my hardship is a sign that I need to repent? The answer is that the sin will be persistent, like Israel's, and it will be clear, like Israel's. God is not waiting, poised to strike us every time we put a foot wrong. That's not how the discipline of a loving father works, and that's not how the discipline of God works. He's not out to get us, end quote. So don't leave this sermon assuming Okay, I'm going to get one round of suffering for my one sin, and if I just don't sin, I won't suffer. Don't think that. The message of lamentations is bigger than that. The message is that all sin deserves judgment. And that sin shatters the relationship between people and God. We see this in the Garden of Eden in Genesis. Genesis. Where God dwelled with his people until they sinned and they were exiled, driven eastward out of the garden. And like Adam and Eve, when they sinned, Israel was cast out of their home, Jerusalem, and driven eastward toward Babylon. My brothers and sisters, under the new covenant, if anything, Lamentations gives us a taste of the punishment we should have gotten for our sins. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, Lamentations gives you but a taste of the punishment you will receive for your sins. Lamentations is like a billboard saying justice is coming. Iron City, we might talk a lot about justice as a church, but make no mistake. Before all other kinds of justice we might like to see carried out, we should first concern ourselves with the justice due us for our own sins. And this justice is not random. It's not imbalanced. It's from the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 5. The people's foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her. And he did that because of her sins, which were many. Chapter 2, verse 13, ends saying, Your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? That's the question the writer asks through tears. Who can heal us? It's the question he puts on, her, puts on our lips. Friend, are you broken? Are you sick with sin? Asking the question, who can heal me? If so, you're in good company. Friends, God's people were asking who can heal us? Because they looked around and saw that they had no options. The city is in ruins. Institutions like the priesthood are in shambles. The temple is destroyed. Friends, the temple was the heart of the city, but it no longer had a pulse after the Babylonians sacked it. Traditions like the Sabbath are forgotten. Beloved, there is no city, no building, no institutions, no festivals, no exemptions from this judgment. Friends, you too would be asking, who can heal us? The writer is looking around and sees nothing but carnage and desperation. Again, he prays for the Lord to see it. Chapter 2, verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see. God, see what I'm seeing. And what is he seeing? Friends, turn to chapter 3. Chapter 3. I want us to hear and see this lament together. The writer writes this. Third poem in the first person, almost as if the people of God have a singular voice as he gives expression to their pain, as he talks about what they've seen. What has he seen? Chapter 3, verse 1 I am the man who has seen affliction. Under the rod of his wrath, he has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me As a target for his arrow, he drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and has made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and it is bowed down within me. Friends, here is the summary of the matter. The people have blown it they are out of second chances. And it's clear they don't just need another chance, they need a savior. They need hope, they need an option to turn to. And so we ask our third question, who alone can save? Question number three, who alone can save? Answer, God. And it's to his unending goodness this passage turns. And this is so important. If you were asleep for the sermon earlier, wake up for this part. Because this is why Lamentations was written. As one pastor said, Lamentations wasn't written simply to express grief over loss, but also to help God's people cope with loss and the temptation to despair by reminding them of God's presence and God's rule. Like Job, Lamentations is a theodicy. That is, it helps people to see God's goodness and power amid suffering. But never mind the words of a pastor. Hear the words of God chapter 3, verse 20, my soul, is continue, my soul is continually remembers my afflictions and is bowed down within me, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord, not my love to him, but his love to me, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Friends, what are you hoping in today? Your own obedience. Your own spiritual strength and consistency. A change in career or in housing. None of it will save you. Change you. Heal you you need a better portion, the Lord. When all else is gone, you need the Lord. When all else is present, you need the Lord. And what is he like? Friends, Lamentations doesn't just tell us what the exile was like, but also what the Lord over the exile is like. We've seen he is just, but he is also good compassionate. Chapter 3, verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Wait quietly. That's exactly what we saw in Job last week, that we ought to cry out and cover our mouths, as verse 29 says. After all, God will not judge us forever. Verse 31, for the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Oh, you want to know why the structure of the book matters, beloved. Beloved. It matters because it shows us the main point of the book. Yes, people sin. Yes, God judges. But that is not the main point of Lamentations. And we know that from its structure. You see, chapters one, two, and four, and five are all 22 verses. Chapter three is 66 verses. It has three times as many verses. chapter three gets triple the number of verses to emphasize that it's the center of the book. Uh, Friends, what the writer of Lamentations has done, he's had a beginning and the end of the book mirror each other and build out from the middle. So we have chapters one and five, chapters two and four, and at the center, the mountaintop is chapter three. And at the center of chapter 3 is verse 33. Let's look at it again. Chapter 3, verse 33, which explains why. Why God has compassion on his people. He has compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Chapter 3, verse 33 says, For, or because, he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Friends, last week in Job, we saw the heavier hand of God. And indeed, we've seen that also today. But today, we also, on a deeper level, see more than God's hand, we see his heart. We see the heart of God. The book is literally set up so we see this. At the middle of the middle of this book, at the heart of this book, is the heart of God. Friend, all that pain we read about on either side of Lamentations, all that pain that Job endured, God did send it. He was sovereign over it, but he did not enjoy sending it. It did not come from his heart. And I think this truth is so important for us to think about, to stare at, because it's so easy for us to think that God is mean, that He didn't really care, that He's not really there, that He can't be trusted. Friends, in getting this sermon ready, I was like, I just preached Job. What else can I say about sadness? Isn't this just going to be a repeat sermon? But then I realized, beloved, that these waters of God's sovereignty are so deep that a couple of weeks in a row to think about them will do us good. After all, the waters may be deep, but they are as comforting as they are deep. When we understand the sovereignty of God and the heart behind that sovereignty. See, if you don't believe in the sovereignty of God, his rule over all things, his orchestration of all things, I think that leaves a lot of room for despair. Because then God is not all that powerful. These things just happen. They're outside of his control. You literally have no idea why that thing is happening. But if all things are in God's control, we can believe that all these things have this heart behind them. Pastor Dane Ortland says, to the degree that we believe God is sovereign in our affliction, to that degree we are able to be comforted that he does not afflict us from his heart. So God is sovereign over all things, but the heart behind that is not mean or petty. It's actually merciful. And so it is conflicted as we suffer. Listen to how Dane Ortland explains this. This is going to be a long quote, but it's worth it. Sisters going through gentle and lowly, check this out. Here in Lamentations, the Bible is taking us deep into God himself. The one who rules and ordains all things brings affliction into our lives with a certain divine reluctance. He's not reluctant about the ultimate good that is going to be brought about through that pain. That is indeed why he's doing it. But something recoils within God in sending that affliction. The pain itself does not reflect his heart. The pain God has sent you does not reflect his heart. God is not a platonic, emotionless force pulling heaven's levers and pulleys in a way that is detached from the real pain and anguish we feel at his hand. He is, if I can put it this way, without questioning his divine perfections, conflicted within himself when he sends affliction into our lives. God is indeed punishing Israel for their waywardness as the Babylonians sweep through the city. He is sending what they deserve, but his deepest heart is their merciful restoration. Friends, as God ministers justice, he does not administer it for pleasure's sake. He's not a parent who enjoys spanking his kids. No, rather, what God loves to do, what is more natural to him is to show mercy. There is nothing in God's heart against showing mercy. He isn't reluctant in showing mercy as he is in administering justice. Again, let's be clear. God is unswervingly just. Again, quoting gentle and lowly here. But there are some things that pour out of God more naturally than others. So God is just, but what is his disposition What is he on the edge of his seat, eager to do? If you catch me off guard, what will leap out of me before I have time to regain composure will likely be grouchiness. If you catch God off guard, what leaps out of him most freely is blessing. The impulse to do good, the desire to swallow us up in joy and mercy. Friends, let me make the matter plain. God does afflict us, but he does not do it from his heart. He does not enjoy it. He has a purpose in our afflictions, but it is not pleasure. He cares for you. His heart is to show you mercy. You can trust him. You can trust his heart. Spurgeon said if you can't trace God's hand, if you can't tell what he's doing, you can trust his heart. Do you trust it? I pray that you will. After all, beloved, it's God's heart that gives us hope. It's knowing that he wants to receive us back that gives us hope that we can return to him, hope that we can repent. That's why in chapter 3, verse 40, in the wake of thinking about God's heart, the writer writes, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Friends, the writer has gone through the doorway of lament and found hope. He has given a prayer in pain, and it has led to trust in God. I mean, do you see, beloved, how hope and repentance are the seeds that spring up, out of the blo- spring up out of the soil of lament? This is why we want to learn this language. This is why we want to lament our sins. James 4 says some of us are walking around smiling. We don't have a problem in the world even when we are in unrepentant sin. James says we got egg on our face, spinach in our teeth, and blood on our hands. We have sins we should repent of. And instead of smiling, James goes on to say we ought rather to weep, to howl, to lament. You see, we don't like lament because we don't like to be sad. We think something is wrong with us if we're sad. But what if it was our lament that actually showed that we are spiritually healthy? What if lament, rather than the smile, was the sign of doing well? Typically, we don't think we're doing well when we're sad, but beloved, if you're lamenting your sin, you might be doing the best you've been doing in a long time. Friends, if we are happy but in sin, in God's economy, we're doing poorly, and if we are sad about sin, we're doing well. One pastor said that verse in James about lament may be the most neglected verse in the Bible for American Christians. Christians in a culture that only want happiness, ease, comfort. Oh, but lamentation says, no, cry about your sin. Be broken over it. And then let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord, whose heart is most naturally merciful for his people, for you, despite all your sins against him. Sins as vast as the sea like Israel who kept on sinning. Which leads us to our last question, question number four. When will God give up on his people? When will God give up on his people? Answer, never. Never. You see, Lamentations ends with an open-ended question. Turn to chapter five, verse 21. Chapter five, verse 21. As we're turning there, remember the structure of the book. We're just at the mountaintop. But it goes back down into despair and lament in chapters 4 and 5. But the writer does pray. The writer asks God in verse 21 to restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew us as in days of old. Pause. The writer says, basically, God, take us back. Make things the way they used to be when we were good with you. That's the prayer request. And here's the odd, sad note the book ends on, though. The writer asks for God to restore the people, but then says, verse 22, unless you have utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. God, take us back unless you won't. Unless you're just mad at us. Unless you're done with us. And that is the question. Will God take his people back? Or is he mad at them forever? Is he now electing to forsake them? The writer didn't write verse 22 so much, to, so much to answer that question, but to raise it. Was God done with his people? And we know that the answer is no. Because though our sins were deeper than the sea, God's mercy went deeper still. We know that the answer is no because Lamentations 5.22 is not the last verse in the Bible. We know the grace of God didn't just call his people back. He came down to get them himself. Beloved, we know that Jesus came. Or at least we should. Right? We can focus on our suffering. We can stare at our sin and lament and lament. But we finally must look to the one who came. The one who waited perfectly on the Lord. The one who sought him. The one who suffered Jesus who died on the cross in our place for our sins. He is the one who drank full the cup of God's judgment, even though he never sinned against God. But we did. We did sin, but Jesus was the one who bore the wrath for us. He was the one who was afflicted for us so that we who sinned, who shattered the relationship between God and us might be restored to him. Friends, Jesus was exiled from God's presence so we might come back to him. He bore God's justice, his wrath, so we could receive God's welcome, his forgiveness. Friends, the heart of God is so good and so big that he would afflict his own son if it meant making you his son, his daughter. So come to Jesus. Christian, come to him again. And if you've never come to God, it's really simple. Believe in what Jesus has done on your behalf and leave your sins. Don't just lament them. Leave them. And come to God who will be merciful to you. Friends, there's more mercy than you can imagine. You don't have to be scared or reluctant or wonder if God is reluctant to receive you. A story from church history illustrates this point. There was a time in the early church when the Roman Empire, in the Roman Empire, the church was under extreme and violent persecution. Lamentations-like stuff. Not sent as punishment, but nonetheless in God's sovereignty. Anyway, there were believers who left the church because they got scared. They lied. They said they weren't Christians, so they wouldn't get hurt. Some believers, however, stayed in the church and endured the suffering And when the persecution led up finally, the ones who defaulted wanted to come back to the church. They realized they shouldn't have denied the faith, that they sinned out of fear. But there was a sect of the church that said, no, no, no way. You can't come back. You guys gave up on us when we most needed you. I mean, can you imagine being one of those believers who defaulted in fear? And you're kind of peeking into the church, sitting in the back, wondering, is there any mercy for me? Restore me, Lord, that I might be restored unless you've utterly rejected me, unless you'll always be mad at me. Some of you are here believing that Jesus died for you, but you still think God is mad at you, that God's disappointed with you. That one one sect of the church said, yeah, God has rejected you. You did let him down. He is mad at you. But there was another section of the church that knew God's heart was mercy. And so I'm sure with some difficulty, they said, of course you guys can come back. Here's some mercy for you, and please have some more. Friends, the reason it's so important to study God's heart is because we often think his heart is like our heart. We're like that first sect in the church that said, yeah, God is mad. I'm so thankful God's heart is not like my heart. My heart has been on vengeance, on getting even, but not God's heart. Maybe a simple way to say it is, I'm so happy God's heart is not like my heart because I would have forsaken me a long time ago. Brothers and sisters, we've asked whether sin leads to sorrow, yes, and so we lament it painfully. We've asked whether sin demands justice. Yes, God will judge it perfectly. We've asked if there's any hope. Yes, and so we return to God desperately. But is God done with us? No. Because of his, because of his heart, he will remain with us faithfully. Beloved, where does sin lead? To sorrow. What does sin deserve? Justice. Who alone can save? God. When will he give up on his people? Never. Never. That's God's heart. Let me pray. Lord, we do pray that you would forgive us all our sins. And we trust that you will hear and forgive. We pray that you'd help us to trust your heart more. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.